Well, I hope everyone out there had a good St. Patrick's Day, enjoyed watching the Colorado Buffaloes in the Pac-12's tournament. Welcome in to another edition of The Runaround on Ralphie Report Radio here with your host, Jack Stern. Although the Buffs had a disappointing ending to their season, they did just enough to earn an NIT tournament berth. I'll wrap up the end of their season out in Vegas in the Pac-12 tournament. Pretty impressive ending, all things considered. I'll let you know why. I'll talk about what's at stake for the future of this program because there is a whole lot going on with this team. I'll preview the NIT matchup against the University of Dayton tomorrow. And last, but certainly certainly, certainly not least, head coach Mel Tucker and company had their very first practice of the spring football season today. I'll get into what we learned from quarterback Steven Montez, the running back battle, and the learning curve that this team faces with a new head coaching staff. All of that and more on this edition of The Runaround. But I want to start off by wrapping up the Pac-12 tournament. Now Colorado started off the tournament with complete clunker of a game against the Cal Bears, one they were able to dig out and win 56-51. Obviously a pretty disappointing performance from the team, and they headed into their next game against Oregon State, the fourth-ranked team in the Pac-12, and one that they lost to in a close game in Boulder. And this team really showed some perseverance. They came, they went in there and blew them out 73-58, 15-point victory against the Beavers. And then they followed it up with a disappointing loss to the University of Washington, one where they came out of the gate strong, led by six at the half, but ended up losing 66-61. Let's start with the game against Cal, though. I want to go in chronological order here. I know the Cal Bears were a team that was underperforming heading into that game. They were really struggling, obviously on a three-game win streak, but they only beat Stanford, Washington State, and Washington is the lone impressive one. But they only had three conference wins throughout the season, which came in their last three games. And they pretty much put on display the fact that when you get hot heading into the Pac-12 tournament, anything is possible. I mean, they gave the Buffs a run for their money up until the very end of that game. They almost tied it in the waning seconds with a three ball from Evan Weaver that fell just short. And they really did a good job of giving the Buffs a run for their money. But Colorado persevered through a game where they turned the ball over 23 times a season high. I mean, as a matter of fact, Tad Boyle said they could open a bakery. They've been committing so many turnovers, which I thought was the typical Boyle honest funny type comment but that game that team showed perseverance because they were able to find a way to win even though they weren't putting their best performance forward I mean this is a team that averages just under 74 points a game and they won on a night when they scored only 56 played stellar defense made plays when it mattered and won that game which is a testament to how far they've come because probably two months ago even if they were a better team than Cal They didn't show it, and they probably would have lost that game. They've gotten upset. So props to them for winning that one. Against Oregon State, pretty much everything went right. Obviously, Tyler Bay wasn't his usual self. But let's take a moment to appreciate Alexander Stratting, the big man, guy who didn't even play against Cal, averaged under under 10 minutes a game. And he answered the bell when Tyler Bay got hurt scoring 10 points, which was a season high for him. 
played outstanding, lights-out performance from the big man. The team showed perseverance in two very different ways against Cal and Oregon State. Cal, they were even though they turned the ball over a lot, they were able to find ways to play good defense, score points when it mattered. And Oregon State, they got the unlikely contributors to step up. Shane Gatling had another outstanding game. And they were able to keep Oregon State off balance by working the inside and the outside. They had a great perimeter shooting game going, and they were getting the ball inside to their big men. <coughs> Excellent all-around performance. Now, against Washington, I mean, we knew that Colorado was going to have to go through arguably the two best teams in the Pac-12 to reach the final, even reach it. They would, they would have had to go against Oregon State, who was ranked fourth but is very explosive offensively. And the Beavers looked like they didn't come ready to play, and Colorado easily beat them in a surprising game. Against Washington, though, everyone thought the Buffs were going to get down early, but in reality, they got out to an 8-0 start. What went wrong the rest of the way, though? That's, that's the question a lot of fans, a lot of people on Twitter, pretty much everyone is asking, what went wrong? Well, what went wrong is Colorado's perimeter offense could not get go going anymore, and that was what really killed them the most. They were getting the ball inside early on. They led 33-27 at the half. But what didn't happen is they didn't put their foot on the, ga on the pedal. They didn't put their foot on the gas when they should have and been, a been able to pull away. And then when Washington played this stiffling zone where they pretty much took Tyler Bay out of the paint, they took Evan Batty out for making those one-on-one -on -one post up plays, and they said, beat us from the outside. And Colorado could not do that. They shot terribly in the second half. Only shot 32.1% for the, for the game. Abysmal. And they just could not knock down enough shots to win that game. And part of it, I think, falls on the shoulders of McKinley Wright, who only went one for 10 from the field. I mean, he's this team's leader, and he couldn't step up. It wasn't just him, though. There was a lot of blame to go around in that game. Aside from Tyler Bay who had 22 points, 11 boards, and an assist. He played his best. Ironically, Bay played his best game of the, of the tournament when this team had their worst. And I went on the record saying it earlier that this team needed to have a cohesive effort and play together to win games in this tournament. Ironically enough, they didn't do that against Cal. And while they did it more against Oregon State, arguably their best player in Bay was taken out of the game. I mean, the guy was essentially a non-factor in the first two games of the tournament, and they still won both pretty easily, which is impressive. Shows how tough this team is and how other guys can step up. But when their perimeter shooting could not get going, it was just very difficult for them to win. And the turnovers also came back to bite them. They had 23 against Cal in the first round. Got away with it because Cal's not as good shooting. But once you play Washington State, who turns turnovers into Washington rather, who turns turnovers into points, it, it makes it nearly impossible to win when you turn the ball over 18 times. I mean, that is ultimately what has killed this team all season. It's turnovers, and they couldn't get away with it against Washington, especially considering how poorly they shot from the field. So those two things: poor field goal shooting, turnovers. That was what led to their downfall in Las Vegas. I mean, the Huskies didn't shoot that much better either. 
And aside from Jalen Norwell, Jalen Noel, excuse me, Matisse Thibel, and um, Nazia Carter, who all, all three of those guys had outstanding games, they didn't really get much else on offense. Those three guys accounted for most of their points. David Crisp also had a good afternoon with 10 points. But the point I'm trying to make is it, Washington was at their worst against Colorado. And, I mean, that's not saying a lot because the Huskies' worst is still better than a lot of teams' best because they are that good of a team. And we saw the Huskies play even worse against Oregon, and they, pay, they paid for it in a big way. They got blown out in that game, especially by the Ducks, a Ducks team that just pulled away completely at the end and found a way to win. But Colorado didn't do enough to turn Washington's garbage into gold, and Washington did against Colorado, which is why they won that game. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The Buffs had a bad second half. That's why they lost. But listen, it's, it's not the end of the world for this team or this program. They're returning all seven players from last year. All five starters will be back. And four out of the five are underclassmen, which is amazing to think about. Shane Gatling is the lone upperclassman in the starting lineup, and he'll be back as well. So they're getting everyone back. And they're getting back a really another, another important player in Dallas Walton, the big man who tore his ACL for the third time in the preseason. This team is going to be dangerous. I don't know how else to say it. Because these other teams, Oregon State, Washington, they're going to be losing a lot of players, and the Buffs are going to retain that same power, firepower on their roster. But with heightened talent comes, coming back comes heightened expectations. If they come out of the gate slow next year, there's not going to be that same excuse of, oh, this is a young team. They haven't played together. They need to find chemistry. I think all of those things were valid concerns this year. But, I mean, next year you have to come out of the gate strong and you're expected to be in the top four no matter what. Can this team deal with that type of pressure? That's going to be what's interesting to see. In hindsight, it didn't hurt them that, that much this year that they had a slow start. Because they still finish fifth. I mean, maybe if they finish third or something like that, you maybe get a better result in the Pac-12 tournament. But playing that hot Oregon team, I don't know. So I don't think it really hurt on the other side of the bracket. I don't really think the slow start killed them that much this year. Maybe from an NCAA tournament perspective, because the top two teams in the Pac-12 are in the tournament, along with the team that won the, won the uh, Pac-12 tournament, but I don't, I don't think the slow start was really what was a stick in their side, so to speak, this year. I, I think next year it could be more costly because next year they're going to have the pressure and expectations of being a better team. And Dallas Walton's going to be a big get because they don't have much size. Batty's a big guy. Bay, uh, Bay is pretty big. But Dallas Walton adds that seven-footer dimension to things, and he could be a big help as a center. And he could help out Batty and Seward in the rotation, I think. So I like what, what is ahead for this team. I think Tad Boyle is going to do a good job of the, with them once again. They're going to have much more veteran leadership and experience. They're going to know what it was like to get to the finals. I like all of those things. Now, granted, Dallas Walton at this point is going to need to show that he can stay healthy. I mean, he hasn't done that since coming to Colorado, unfortunately. But if he can do that, 
and he can get better and take the next step, watch out because there's so much potential in that big man. I mean, he'll be a redshirt junior next year, but why can't he have his two his best two seasons in his last two years at Colorado? Brimming potential. Manhandled DeAndre Ayton against Arizona last year. So I'm really excited to see what the future holds for him. But looking ahead, I know the Pac-12 tournament is over now. It's a tough pill to swallow. I have to admit it is. Because, you know, if this team was able to get past Washington, stay strong in the second half, get make a couple more buckets, they'd probably be dancing right now. I mean, there's no guarantee they beat Oregon because Oregon's really good. And they split the season series with them. And the Ducks are playing much better basketball than when they came to Boulder last. But still, I think there is a better chance of them getting in the Pac-12 tournament if they advance that far. But anyway, they didn't. That's for not. They play the Dayton Flyers tomorrow uh, at the Coors Event Center. Flyers are 21-11 and 11 on the season. They had a loss to St. Louis in the Atlantic 10 uh, conference, which got them pushed out and getting to play in the college basketball version of bowl games, which is the NIT tournament. No, it's a little, uh, the NCAA tournament's a little bit bigger than the college football playoff, but it's still a nice, you know, yeah, the NIT is still a nice bowl-esque consolation prize that not everyone gets. Remember, you have to be a top 100 team in the country to get there. And I think this is going to be some nice practice for Boyle squad for what's to come if they do make the NCAA tournament. It's nice for them to at least have a simulation of it and get to play some more basketball. I mean, those two things are nice. Let's look at the silver linings in the situation here. But looking at Day- going back and looking at Dayton, this is a school that's not very good. Um, they've struggled a lot at points in the season. Obviously have some really talented players led by Obadiah Topin, 14.2 points a game in just 26 minutes. I mean, that's pretty impressive. The forward inside, they have a little bit more they have a little bit more size inside which Colorado doesn't have. They like to play slower on offense, really pay, play hot potato on the perimeter. I mean, you see that a lot in college basketball, but what I'm trying to say is this a this is a very different type of tempo type team. And it's great that fans are going to get to watch another game at the CU Event Center. I mean, the last memory we have of that is Naaman Wright getting his jersey on the floor and people saying, okay, it's NCAA tournament or bust for this team. But no, they won a couple games. They impressed people. And now they're the fourth seed in the second uh, tight tier NIT tournament. Really impressive. <coughs> There's going to be some personal stake, I feel like, in this game too. For people who don't know, I know our listeners keep up with these all of our players like no other, but something that a lot of people don't know is that McKinley Wright had originally committed to the University of Dayton and decided to decommit when they had a coaching change. And his story has it, Tad Boyle was out on vacation in Mexico and cut his trip short so he could host McKinley Wright on a visit after he decommitted from Dayton, which shows some extreme commitment. And good thing that happened because Boyle found their best player and one of the better players in Colorado basketball history, especially as of recent. I mean, I don't mean to tangent because we're talking about McKinley as it relates to Dayton right now, but I have to admire Wright's perseverance and toughness. I mean, he play, he's playing through a torn labrum 
on his shoulder. I cannot even imagine the pain this man is in. And he's still playing. Unbelievable. So impressive. I love, I love what Ken's doing right now. And thank God that whole situation played out like it did where he left Dayton, came to Colorado, because he's done spectacular things with the Buffs now. Um, just, just really impressive overall. I think the Buffs have a good shot at winning this game. And just looking at the bracket, the road to MSG is not that hard. It's not that complex, it, it wouldn't seem. I mean, they're going to – Colorado, whoever wins the Colorado-Dayton game plays the winner of Alabama or Norfolk State. And depending on who wins that game, Colorado could potentially host another home game or two. Because if they win that and they play Norfolk State and a lower seed than four wins from the other side of the bracket – They'll host two more road games before heading to Madison Square Garden for the semifinal on April 2nd. So you have to like where they're at. And Alabama, okay, they're ranked number one in the country. Let's say Norfolk State, who's state, who's ranked eighth, loses to Alabama. Colorado plays the number one team but in their region, but Alabama's coming off a really tough time in the SEC tournament. They had a win against Ole Miss, but then they had a really tough loss against Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky's the second-best team in the SEC and, you know, a Pac-12 or NCAA tournament team, but still. They're, they're cold right now, and the fact that they only made it to the second round should give the Buffs some confidence because they made it to the third round, and Colorado's hot. They've won 11 of their 13 final games. Went two and one in the Pac, five and one in their last six, two and one in the Pac-12 tournament. Pretty impressive how good they're playing right now, and there, there's a lot to be excited about with this team because even if the NIT doesn't mean as much, it's still exciting to watch this team take the floor a couple more times, hopefully, and develop even further. And I think they could easily make it to the quarterfinal if they're able to beat Dayton tomorrow. Because I don't think whoever wins Alabama or and against Norfolk State is that good. Norfolk State, excuse me, it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Anyway, I know all of our listeners love college football, love spring football, have been chomping at the bit to hear more about Mel Tucker, so I'm going to give it to you right now. We're going to talk Steven Montez, the running back battle, and the learning curve kind of that this team is facing right now. In terms of Steven Montez, though, it's pretty clear he's made leaps and strides since coming to the uh, University of Colorado, especially in his second year as a starter last year. Has definitely been much better in the pocket, his recognition to that, those types of things, his decision-making. All of those things, have he's taken leaps and strides as a player, and it's been really impressive. But... It's important to remember here that he's about to go into his third quarterback coach in the past three years. And as he attested to after practice today, all three of those guys were good quarterback coaches, at least in his opinion, but they all had a very different style and kind of demeanor, if you will. The new sheriff in town at the quarterback position and the new offensive coordinator is Jay Johnson, quality, former quality control guy at Georgia. He's coached at Louisiana Lafayette, among other places. But among other things that he brings to the table, he has more of a pro-style offense, and he's going to be calling the plays this year. 
Last year, Stephen was in kind of a spread slash air raid type system. The year before, I would say it was more of a traditional spread system. So he's been in three different systems in three years as well. Okay, but the pro-style offense, let me, guys, let me give you guys the difference. Quarterbacks are under center more. They're dropping back. They're making adjustments at the line of scrimmage. And I think one of the things, as, as good as he got in other areas, I think, and he did improve in this area, but one of the things I think Steven Montez needs to improve in if he wants to become an NFL quarterback is recognition of defenses, okay? I mean, we saw it a couple times in the Cal game where Cal kind of dressed up their uh, defensive formations a little bit and were able to pick them off pretty easily. And that's where he's gotten himself into trouble. I mean, he can protect the football well, but... You know, sometimes when he'll, he'll stare down his number one read, he'll give away where he's going on a play, and that's what leads to interceptions and poor passes and poor decision-making for Steven Montez. So that's one thing I think Johnson is going to help with. The pro-style offense emphasizes not just running a given play, but going through your options when you get to the line of scrimmage, looking at your receivers, looking at the coverage, understanding what's happening, and I think that's something that Steven needs to do better if he wants to get to the league. He needs to be able to look at read one, two, three, four, and even a five in some potential situations. He has to be that cerebral as a quarterback because of all the different things that are going on. And the thing about starting quarterbacks in college football is you typically see them get better and better and better from year one to year two to year three. I mean, Kurt Roper talked about seeing it in Peyton and Eli Manning. Two guys, two incredible players he coached. And with Steven Montez, I think it's going to be, he's, he's going to be even better in year three than he was in year two. But he's going to have to become better at understanding what a defense is trying to do. And Jay Johnson hasn't coached quarterbacks in a couple years. So while I like his ability with the offense, I'm slightly concerned about his ability in terms of coaching up the quarterback. But... I do think having a guy from Georgia who understands defenses and you know has a really SEC-type mentality where they like to run the football, play good defense, be extremely physical up at the line of scrimmage, I think all of that's going to help him. Speaking of the running back position, though, because Steven Montez talked about really loving having a system that emphasizes running the football because he's not going to he's not gonna have to do as much. The pressure is going to be off his shoulders in large part. He has really good receivers, so his job is going to be much easier not having to throw the ball 30, 35, even more times a game because he was asked to do that, and that's a lot of pressure. The NFL, you know, a veteran leader like Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, they can do that type of thing, but in college, it's just so hard to have that much weight on your shoulders, but looking at the running back battle because that depth chart is extremely clogged right now. You have redshirt sophomore Alex Fontenot, who I think is a leader to win that starting job. True senior Bo Bicharat, who's been a good short yardage, big, bulky back, but really hasn't had explosive running back written all over him in his college career. You have Fontenot, Bicharat, Dion Smith, who's coming off an injury, but he was a big back coming out of Houston. Jarek Prezard, another Texas back off injury, two redshirt freshmen. And then you have two true freshmen coming in, and Jaron Mangum, guy from Michigan, four-star recruit who received about 60 scholarship offers 
Mel Tucker was able to pry him away from a couple other places. And then you have Joshua Davis, um, guy from Valor Christian, another big back. Mangum and Davis both, both definitely fit Tucker's bigger back type mold. They're, they're, they're bigger guys. And even Bisharat. And the thing about having a new coaching staff and not having a graduate transfer like Trayvon McMillan, which is what the Buffs had last year, you know, he was all along the clear favorite to win that position, and he did. But not having those two things, I mean, there's going to be a ton of competition at the position. Anyone can, literally anyone can win it. Right now, if there was a front runner, I would say it would be Jaron Mangum, simply because of how heavy he was recruited. But I wouldn't rule out Deion Smith. Jarek Broussard seems like a nice little scat back who could emerge, depending on what, how Jay Johnson wants to use him in the offense. I've heard he's been running with the twos in spring ball. But I think Jaron Mangum or Deion Smith right now would be the front runner to win that lead back competition. When you look at the teams that play this brand of football too, Utah, Washington, to a lesser extent, Oregon, obviously probably before they had Justin Herbert a little bit more so, but those teams, they have a lead back who will carry the ball probably up to 15 times a game, and then they have a scat back type guy who carries it five and maybe will get eight or so touches, but they do like to mix it up a little bit, and, and I do think there will be a lead back in this situation. I think the battle is down to Smith, Mangum, Davis, and I mean, anyone's in theory, in the mix. But I, I think Bo Bisharat just doesn't have the speed, the agility, the instinctiveness that a running back has, just, just from how I've seen him before. He's good if you in, in, in the goal line, being bulky, pushing the ball in the, into the end zone. But I just don't think he's Mel Tucker's type of back, so to speak. I don't, I don't think he fits that mold very well. Who knows, though? He could potentially win some time as a third running back. He's been great on special teams, I'll say that much. And they could make a role for him if they like his stature. Maybe he serves as a fullback. Maybe they try to get the ball in his hands on screen passes out of the backfield. I don't know. This is, this is a uh, coaching staff that has a lot of tricks up their sleeves, so only time will tell. But I, I, it's going to be interesting to watch the running back battle because it's, it's so open, A, and B, it's going to play such a large role in their offense. So... Just get just watching it and seeing who emerges is the lead back, and uh, that's gonna that's gonna be probably the most interesting storyline to watch all off season. I don't expect the coaching staff to give much away. Mel Tucker seems pretty tight lipped when it comes to this type of thing, but uh, I'm curious to see who wins because it's 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 gonna be interesting. And you know, obviously Smith and Mangum in particular are absolutely brimming in potential. They were both really highly recruits. So uh, I'm curious to see who emerges as the lead dog in this competition. But another thing that was talked about a lot today was the learning curve. Because, I mean, spring ball, it, it's, since it's extended and since it was pushed back, and a lot of it is, is going to be about strength and conditioning and learning the terminology and putting it on the field. Spring ball typically isn't as intense as fall camp, obviously, but it will, with the new coaching staff it is. But for, the, for most of these guys, it's going to be about getting the terminology down and understanding what these coaches are trying to do. And from that, that that's something that's going to be challenging for this team because I think there was not as much complexity with Coach McIntyre 
DJ Elliott and that entire staff. But I think this staff has much more in terms of understanding certain things about football. They have a much closer attention to details, so to speak, which is quite honestly what Mike McIntyre lacked throughout his entire tenure here in Boulder. Mustafa Johnson, by the way, one of the best players on the team, the defensive end, defensive lineman if you want to call him. He lined up inside a few times. But anyway, he said today that it's been tough for him because he's a slow learner and you know he's had to dedicate more time in terms of putting his head in the playbook and understanding certain things about what's going on. But, I mean, that's just how this team is going to have to learn. Steven Montez said the quarterback room, they, those guys have been working to you know, review information almost lethargically whenever they get a moment's rest. So it's exciting to watch this team and, you know, how they grow under head coach Mel Tucker and his staff. Anyway, I will be out of town next week, so there won't unfortunately be another edition of the runaround here on Ralphie Report Radio. But with all the NIT tournament stuff going on, be sure to stay tuned for all of our content. We'll have full coverage on ralphiereport.com, and I look forward to getting back to you guys in two weeks for another edition of The Runaround. This is Jack Stern for Right Now, signing off.